Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of Romans as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Creation Groans, and So Do We. a copy of the scriptures with you. Romans chapter 8. I'll say something about it here in just a bit, but while you're uh, turning, a couple church family matters to pass along to you. Uh, One is a week from today um, in the service, we will do our uh, deacon installation as we've been uh, going through some training and interviewing and such. So that'll be a week from today as part of the service. And then uh, also... Because we have recently gone to the the two services, Saturday night and and Sunday, when it comes to our church business meetings, when we have matters to uh, talk about and decide upon, uh, we've we've decided that when we need to, we'll do Wednesday nights um, for that. So December the 16th. Um, so that's not this Wednesday, uh, but a week from that, we'll have a, uh, a meeting then. Uh, so we'll gather for worship that night. Uh, we will still pray together, still study the word, uh, do it in a bit of an abbreviated way. And then we'll have our church family meeting there and we'll have got some budget things to talk about. So kind of know that that's coming up there. All right, let's turn our attention to Romans 8 here. Now, we're in a section of verses 1 through 30, so that's a whole kind of unit there that we've been working, but there there are these sections within the sections, and verses 18 to 25 is another section within the section here. This eighth point that we see in this unit. Uh, We're working through these nine ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to his people, we, we come to the eighth one. This one has a bit of an expanded explanation there because there's some big stuff going on. So 18 to 25 is gonna be that. For you who, like myself, love literature, um, love high quality, well-written literature, this is a beautiful section that there are glorious truths that are spoken here, but they're spoken in a a remarkably beautiful kind of way. So look for that, hear it as we go. Let's begin in verse 18. We'll read through 25 and then we'll pray and ask for God's grace. So verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, We wait eagerly for it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come and we ask for your help. 
We ask that you would give the grace to work the miracles that need to happen, O Lord, so that we are able to see, understand, worship you as you deserve, and then be changed by your word. Father, we ask that you will give us of your spirit, Lord, that we would be able to worship through um, the, the study of these truths, O God. Lord, we see your word teach us that we ought to pray that we will come to know the hope that we have in Christ. Not just intellectually acknowledge it, but to know it down into the depth of our bones that we have hope and for this hope to minister to us and to give us soaring strength and joy. And Father, we pray that we will comprehend what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance that we have to come. Father, and I pray that you will open our eyes to comprehend these things and then all of the wonderful effects that it has, including conviction of sin and the desire to obey you, the willingness to suffer. We pray that you will bring these things about, O oh God. So Father, we pray, accomplish your purposes. We are your people. We are servants who are drawing near, asking, give us grace so that we can be transformed. So Lord, please give this grace. Fathers, I'm going to teach these things. I need your help. I pray, Lord, I'll be a useful servant, uh, that you'll guard my lips, that I, I won't say unhelpful things, but teach only truth in a way that's faithful to the text, even with a, a tone and um, attitude, oh Lord, that honors you. So please bless Help us to worship, and we pray it all for the glory of your name, and we pray it through the name of Christ. Amen. I want you to uh, imagine your faith in Christ, your, your trust in the Lord that you have. Imagine it as a, a ship. Now, I, I'm going to kind of draw out a metaphor here. This is a metaphor that I take from several parts of Scripture. Uh, there's that place in 1 Timothy where Paul mentions a man who had made shipwreck of his faith. Okay, so that's language that would speak to the falling away from Christ. He once believed, but then fell away. But there's also a, a passage in Hebrews 6 there that uses this kind of metaphor. I'll, I'll reference that just a little bit. So I'm going to kind of paint a picture of a metaphor. Uh, hope, to, hope that it will serve us to see the primary application that we're supposed to see from this text that's here. So your faith is a ship. On the ship, there are many dangers. Leaks can spring. Storms threaten the, the jagged rocks of reefs beside us threaten to tear us to pieces. And if your faith is shipwrecked, so if your faith is wrecked, you lose your soul. Because salvation comes by faith, okay? Not by works. It's on the basis of faith. So if we lose our faith, if we fall away from Christ then the faith is shipwrecked, we lose our soul. Now, as, as we say that, I know that there could be like a little bit of pushback, but, but pastor, you know, what about how we talk about we have security in Christ? What about how we see that Jesus is holding fast to us? All of that is true. And all of that is secret will of God stuff that's in the heavenly places. But from our perspective, the Bible does also strongly speak to us believers and say, while we have confidence that if we are in Christ, he is holding on to us, we are commanded, hold fast to him. 
We are given responsibility. So just in the same way as God promises to provide and we don't sit on the couch and wait for cheeseburgers to fall out of the sky. When it comes to our faith in Christ, we don't just say God will take care of that without us striving. We are given responsibility, cling to Christ. So hold fast. This is a metaphor that the Bible uses. If your faith is shipwrecked, your soul is lost. There is a battle over your soul. There are storms of trials, even full hurricanes of afflictions and suffering that batter the sails and threaten your safety. So you need an anchor. You need an anchor. You need something that is going to hold you upright, keep you from being pushed into the, the reefs of doubt and falling away from Christ, you need something that you can hold on to and keep you intact. So you need an anchor. Normally we imagine anchors going down, but I love this picture from scripture. Hebrews six mentions that we have an anchor. We have a hope. We have an anchor, but it doesn't go down. It stretches up into the heavens. Jesus after accomplishing the work of redemption of the cross, after he made satisfaction for sins, paid the price of justice in himself, he ascended from this earth, passed through the gates of heaven. That would have been amazing to get to experience the, the praise and worship of heaven as Jesus walks through the gates, walks through the courtyard up to the temple in heaven, through the holy place, through the veil into the holy of holies, the very throne room of God the Father. And there he took his seat on the throne prepared for him by the Father and Jesus sat down sat down to rule the cosmos. And there Hebrews six says, there is our anchor fixed. We can tie our line to an anchor that will not budge, that will hold our ship from being pushed into the reef. Now it's important though, that we understand what the point of that metaphor in Hebrews six is. It is speaking not only to the reality of our security in Christ, it's speaking to the reality of the hope that we can take from that. Meaning, hope is that encouraging and strengthening joy and security that our heart experiences when we have absolute confidence that we are safe in Christ. Let me see if I can kind of illustrate it in some real life settings here. Uh, imagine a man who is in a workplace meeting. His boss is instructing the employees to um, act in a way that violates scripture, being instructed of this. So the man speaks up in the workplace and he says, I, I cannot do this. I can't violate my conscience. And he defends the scriptures. But then after the meeting's over, he goes home and he begins to worry and he begins to be obsessed with the, the fretting, the stress, anxiety. Am I going to be fired? You know, what is this going to mean? Am I going to lose my job? How am I going to provide for my family? All of these kinds of things. He throws up. He's just coming unglued from the worry of what's going to happen there. But contrast that then with, you know, we could 
pick so many examples from history, but take a John Bunyan, a John Bunyan who was arrested for preaching Christ. After a couple of years in prison, he was given the opportunity to be set free if he would just promise to stop preaching, to which he tells the judge, no, he considers the reward. He considers the hope that he has. He tells the judge, I'm not going to stop preaching. You're going to have to keep me locked up. And he spends a total of 12 years in prison while his wife and blind daughter are left without the provider in his home. And yet in joy, in security, in hope, he endures these trials. Which of these two men was holding fast to their hope? Which of these two men had the confidence and security that comes from clinging tightly to the rope of the anchor. Our hope in Christ is like an anchor, an anchor that doesn't go down. It reaches up. We must cling to the rope, hold fast. That's not going to be easy. When the storms rage and there are difficulties, afflictions, and suffering, those are the moments where our grip might fatigue, might let go. The knots will be strained. What we have in this passage here is a word of truth that is meant to strengthen our grip on the rope. It's a word of truth that is meant to give soaring confidence for all of life, but, but especially in those times of suffering. So in this section in Romans 8, we've been working through. We've been seeing these various ways that the Spirit ministers to us. Now we're ready to, to look at this eighth one. This eighth one is the Spirit leads us to groan for our redemption. He's leading us to long and to ache for the day of our redemption. And, and this is a longer section than the other points that we've been seeing. And the reason why is there's some more explanation that's needed in order to make this one clear. But here's a, here's a bit of an overview of what's kind of happening in the whole section. Several times in the book of Romans, uh, we've been seeing as an argument has been being made on a point that some major truth or even a major whole doctrine will be very briefly just mentioned quickly. It's not explained, just mentioned quickly. But then later we come back to it and the spirit leads Paul to further explain it. Well, in the last verses we just studied, the seventh work of the spirit that we saw is that he is testifying to us of our adoption, leading us that we can call God Father and that we are joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Well, he didn't explain what glorification is. It's just mentioned, but now there's going to be a bit more of an expanded explanation because glorification is a pretty major subject, Christian. Glorification for you who are in Christ, for you who have responded to him in faith, glorification is your future into an infinite number of eons in the ages to come. Glorification is your final salvation. Okay, glorification is when your 
glorified foot (laughs) attached to your newly resurrected glorified body takes its first joy-filled glorified step into that kingdom of glory to come. And in infinite number of ages, you live in the glory of God. Glorification includes the new creation, new skies, new earth, new city, new Jerusalem, world without end. That's a pretty major truth. And so what happens in this passage is some more time is spent on that. Now, this passage doesn't give us everything we'd like to know on glorification. It's not even one of the places in the Bible that describes what it will all look like. There are other places in the Bible that go into some of those details. Sometimes look at Revelation, uh, the very end of the book there, 21 and 22. But what we have here is explanation showing us the Spirit's work in our life to get us ready for glorification. What He is doing in us so that we are ready to come into the coming kingdom of God. You Christian, you're being prepared for your real home. You're being prepared for what is to come, your final redemption. You Christian, you're joined to Christ. You're no longer of this world. You are now citizens of a different kingdom. Your citizens, not of earth, but of the kingdom of God. You are strangers. You are sojourners. You are aliens. Listen to me, Christian. You do not belong here. This is not our home. This is not our home. And when we feel comfortable here, something is wrong. Something is off when we feel like this is our home. But we all know the temptation that we again and again drift to these places where we're building castles in the sand and we're treating this life as though I belong here. You don't belong here. This is not who you are. You are now of the kingdom of God and the spirit is at work to make you feel this and to know you are pilgrims here and to get us ready for the age to come. He is making you homesick for a place you have not yet seen. He is leading us to groan for our redemption. And by the way, part of how he does that, suffering has the effect of making this place no longer feel like home and ache and long for the kingdom to come. This is yet another positive result that suffering produces for the Christian. But to get to all of that point, he's got to do some explanation first. So the big point we're working towards is the spirit leads us to groan. But before we fully understand that, he's going to, he's going to lay some more foundations to build up this argument. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this kind of one truth at a time. Um, I had hoped that we would be able to get farther than what we're going to get today. Um, I promise I'm not trying to set any records by how slow can we go. Okay. It is just when we look at a truth, it's, we got to be able to adequately chew it and adequately think through it. And so we're only today going to consider verse 18 because there is enough here that we need to give deep consideration to it. So this week, 
just verse 18. We're going to continue to look one truth at a time and thoroughly chew it. And so that we, we come to, we fully understand what it means that he's leading us to groan for our redemption. So I'm going to explain uh, this section, verse 18, and then I'm going to spend some time today, more time than normal, um, applying this in some of the big ways that we're meant to see application come from it. So point number eight, spirit leads us to groan for our redemption. So take a look at verse 18 again. He begins by saying, for I consider that word consider there. That's a word we've already studied in the book of Romans. You, you may remember if you've been with us for the study, thinking back to chapter three and four, when we were studying justification, Okay, so justification, that is the moment when we are made right with God upon turning to Christ in true faith. Justification. And one of the things we learned there is you and I are not righteous in the eyes of God. We are not righteous. We have broken his law. Sin is more awful than we've ever considered. We are foul and unfit to have union with God and to come into his kingdom. But God has made a way for souls to be saved from the hell that we deserve. The gospel is Jesus has come. Jesus has come and Jesus on the cross paid the price of justice, has made a way for souls to be saved if we will now respond to him turning in genuine faith. For all who do, that's the invitation, come, come to Christ, for all who do at the instant that you turn and believe at that instant, you are what the Bible calls justified and justified means as Romans four explained it to be counted as righteous. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous, but legally God writes it in the books that we are based on the righteousness of Christ. And then one day we will be made righteous. There is a substitution that has taken place. And so that word consider there, if you may remember the Greek word, it's logizomai, okay? I consider. So uh, it is sometimes translated as reckon. God reckons us as righteous. God counts us as righteous. God regards us as righteous. That's the word that Paul uses here. So he is saying, as I think on the sufferings of this present age, I regard them as not even comparable. I consider it as not even comparable. Now, so Paul says, I consider it that way. Does that mean that this is just Paul's opinion? He's saying, I don't know, but this is what I think. Okay. No, the truth of the matter is that the glory that the Christian has to come. The glory to come is so great that it will make the sufferings of this life as, as weightless as chaff in your hands compared to the mountain of glory that is to come. It will be, it is incomparable. But there is a point by the way that it is written, Christian. The, the, the point behind the way that it is written is this. You are going to have to consider it so yourself. Before you will turn to Christ, if you have not yet done that, before you are going to be willing to suffer with Christ, your own heart is going to have to be willing to count it as 
worth it. You will not lay your head on a butchering block to be severed from your body for the name of Christ unless you believe that it is worth it. Unless you count it as worth it, you will not regard it such. And so it is true, but you are going to have to personally own that. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time, we spent last Sunday primarily looking at the reality that we must suffer in order to be glorified. The Christian has signed up to follow Christ and suffer. Now, at the, at, the, at the end of every time I preach, uh, Pastor Ben can you know sympathize with this if you've ever taught a message. At the end of it, you hate yourself for all the things you said, didn't say, and didn't come out right, and I should have, you know, all these kinds of things Sunday nights, I just hate myself, and you can ask my wife, go through all of this trauma of wishing I would have done these kinds of things. At the end of last message last week, one of the things that I regretted was the fact that I don't believe I gave the whole picture clear enough. We spent the whole time talking about the suffering and the hardships and didn't talk a lot about the hope, okay, that it is worth it. So I'm glad to get to follow that up this week and to preach this. Now, there are still hard truths that we got to talk about here, but what we are shown here is the hope that we have. There's healing for the wounds um, that we have in this. And so here is the hope, Christian. So this is is kind of the overview of verse 18. The sufferings of this life are so insignificant when compared to the weight of glory that we will receive, we will experience, we will live in, that in glory we will joyfully celebrate that it was all worth it and we will look back on those sufferings and we will count them as small and insignificant pebbles compared to the mountain of glory and joy that we have. That's verse 18 overviewed. Our hardships and, and even the afflictions, the, the hurtful sufferings that we have, they seem so big now. They, they seem like mountains to us in the moment. They're not, but this is just our perspective from the flesh. They're not, but what we're being told is when we see glory, we will see what is actually big. And we will look back on those sufferings and see them as nothing. You, you who have kids or had kids, maybe they're already raised. Did, did your kids ever have like total meltdowns over things that just didn't matter? Okay, like at the toddler age, uh, right? When it came to like tie your shoes and they just have a hissy fit meltdown, throw down those kinds of things. Okay, or like my cup wasn't set where it was supposed to be and they just lose it. Okay, so that happens as parents, as part of raising children. When your kid has the meltdown over something like tying their shoes, your child is thinking this is a life ending catastrophe and you're going, it's, it's your shoes. <laughs> Stop it, okay? What is the problem? What's going on there? The issue is, is perspective. To your toddler, it seems like a mountain. As we mature, the tying the shoes no longer feels like a life-ending catastrophe. But here's part of the point, Christian. Though we have grown a lot 
since toddler age. And though we've learned a lot of the Bible from being a Christian and studying, still the reality is we do not see the world as it actually is. We have a finite kind of perspective and our sufferings and afflictions and hardships now, they seem big. God is telling us they're not. They're not. Now, I imagine that as I say that, there could be some various reactions. I imagine that some could even get angry and say, well, pastor, speak for yourself because you have no idea what unspeakable horrors I have endured. And to that, I will say, be comforted that the man that God used to write this passage of scripture was a man who knew suffering. It was a man who knew pain. God used Paul. He's not the only one that God used to say these kinds of truths, but God inspired Paul to write this passage. He was a man who was tied to a pole on five occasions, stripped and whipped with the 39 lashes. He was tied to a pole and stripped on three occasions and beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He tells us he spent a night and a day in, in the deep. Okay. So that's some people's worst nightmare paddling. Okay. Treading water in the sea through the night in the cold swims to the banks, crawls onto the shore, shivering, and then gets bitten by a venomous snake. He was betrayed, hated, slept in dungeons, endured stress. And at the end, his head was laid on a butchering block and severed from his body. We're not just talking about middle-class American life kind of difficulties where sometimes folks complain about using, losing power for a day. There are unspeakable horrors on this cursed planet. And I am encouraged that the Bible doesn't shy away from them. Even though sometimes Christians want to run away from them. The Bible does not. The Bible does, is not afraid to deal with in raw and honest, just difficult sometimes kinds of ways confront us with the unspeakable horrors that exist. There are terrifying evils here. And by the way, Christian, if you think that by being a Christian, it means that God is always going to protect his people so that they never go through the, the worst of those kinds of things, you, you've been deceived. You've been listening to the liars in the thousand dollar suits. The worst of sufferings that you have never even heard of. No matter their severity, here's the truth that God is telling us. They cannot even compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christian, your labor is not in vain and your suffering is not in vain. Other passages tell us that your sufferings are even increasing the weight of your glory. This passage is just telling us some other kinds of things, but there are other places that show us those, those truths. Your sufferings are even increasing the reward reward, increasing the weight of glory that you will have. It will be 
worth it. So that's kind of the overview of verse 18. Let's keep considering it in more depth. We're told about a glory that is to be revealed to us. So what is, what is the glory? What, what, what glory do we have to come? Well, it is the glory that we will receive from God. It will be one part. So you, you right now, you are made in the image of the living God. You have some glory. When the angels look, they see some glory, but it is nothing compared to the glory that we will have. There is glory that we will receive. We will be honored. Secondly, it is the glory of the kingdom that God has prepared for his people. But the greatest is the glory of God himself that we will enjoy, we will live in the radiance of his brilliant majesty, which is so intense. There are angels who in his presence cover their eyes so as not to look directly on him. And we will live in the light of his glory throughout eternity. Remember, glory is what is magnificent. Okay, gl glory is what leaves us stunned. Glory is what causes us to behold and be stricken. Okay, so uh, things can be beautiful and so be glorious, but don't think that glory is just something of being seen, okay? It's not just the senses. Sounds can be glorious, tastes can be glorious, sights can be glorious, but there are deeper glories that we can experience though we don't know how to explain. Mountains have a kind of glory. Stars have a kind of glory. God has created the cosmos with glory that is inherent in many ways, but even this is the fallen creation. But glory is what causes us to behold. So we are entering glory. The glory of a kingdom where the, the world and all of creation has been regenerated, remade, we will appreciate, we will behold the glory that God gives to various creatures and objects, humans and angels, things we don't understand. Scripture describes some of the sights and sounds and taste and some of the beauty that will exist in the kingdom. But the mountain peak of it all, the mountain peak of it all is the one from whom everything else derives its glory, the God of glory. So the glory that is to come will be so big, so breathtaking, will cause such joy in us that we will consider this, we will easily, we will easily call all earthly pain and difficulty as worth it. Now, it wouldn't take a lot of glory to make up for spilled milk and flat tires. But when we consider real kinds of afflictions, real kinds of pain, pain to the body, disease, cancer, torture, rape, molestation, pains of the heart, spouses who leave, children who break parents' hearts, the death of loved ones, your beloved child dying in unexpected and traumatic ways, 
Or we consider the afflictions that some of our brothers and sisters in the world right now are enduring, some by persecution and some just by the difficulty they live in, believers in China who are being rounded up and put into concentration camps where they are tormented and sometimes raped. Brothers and sisters in Africa who endure uh, living in these areas of poverty where warlords or the latest Islamic group, whichever it is this day, ISIS-like groups who show up and slaughter the men, take the Christian women as sex slaves, intentionally humiliate them in devious ways so as to shame Christians and put fear in the hearts of any who consider becoming a Christian. The afflictions of believers in places like India who live in such poverty that many will spend their entire life and never sleep one night in a bed, who pilfer trash heaps looking for food. Believers in North Korea living in labor camps, infested with parasites, forced to work to exhaustion, intentionally given meager rations of food and meager amounts of clothing so that they endure the, the suffering of exhaustion and cold working in the winter. And you know, we're not even mentioning all of them that we know. Parenthesis, by the way, American Christians, God has given great grace. We, we ought not feel guilty about giving grace and being allowed to live in peace, but there does need to be exceptional gratitude and a remembering of our brothers and sisters who are in Christ, who have not been given those kinds of peace and grace that we have known. We are to pray for them. And I know I'm on a little bit of a side trail here, but we also need to bear those kinds of things in mind when we talk about God's provisions. God's provision for his people does not mean he provides in the way that I say that he should. God is providing for his people in India. God is providing for his people in these various places that comes by his definition. But the point of what I'm saying is that these kinds of afflictions, it will take a kind of glory that is impossible to imagine now for those believers to enter glory and to celebrate. For those believers who endure that kind of pain, that kind of affliction, for them to walk into the kingdom and to celebrate in joy and to look around and to cry out that it was all worth it, to look back on earthly sufferings and to say that it was all light and momentary. That's biblical language, by the way. Sufferings here are light and momentary, but this is big and everlasting. Understand that when scripture speaks of the glory, of the joy that we will come into, it is never described as barely worth it. Like as if Christians step in there and look around and go, yeah, I mean, I guess. <laughs> and that's not the reaction. The reaction that we see in scenes like in the book of Revelation where we're given these glimpses into heaven. And as the redeemed souls are gathered around the throne of God, they are falling on their faces in worshiping joy, in joy. And they are amazed. 
They're not saying, well, God, you owed me and yeah, you, you repaid. No, that's not what they're They are amazed at the grace of God that he would give such exceptional mercy. And that includes believers who have died horrendously brutal kinds of martyrs' deaths. They fall before the throne and they cry out in worship over the amazing grace that God has given So how great must the glory be for those who have suffered so much to count God as infinitely kind? It must be a glory that is incomprehensibly great. It must be a glory that gives such enjoyment that it heals the wounds. It heals the wounds and gives gladness and gladness for eternity. See, I don't, I don't know about you, but that's one of the things about this that, that amazes me the most. It's, it's the eternality of the joy and the gratitude. You know, my mind can comprehend right now big joy, okay? Now, it's nothing compared to the joy that will come, but I can comprehend big joy now. What I, what I, have, I cannot comprehend is how joy can last forever because what happens here? We'll experience gratitude. And then what happens? Sin. My finite, weak, fleshly, cranky, selfish, ungrateful heart. It it dwindles and it ends. God is going to give us glorified hearts, glorified minds, glorified intellectual capacity so that we are able to have joy and gratitude and for it to remain forever, never wear out and only increase. The glory is so heavy, it will make our sufferings as light. It is worth it. Now, I, I want to kind of begin the application here. And I, I want to first want to give a word to you. I want to make an appeal to you who have not turned to Christ. To you that have not um, received him. You have heard the message of the gospel that you must be saved. You must turn your heart, bow the knee, believe on Christ and admit your need, cry out to him and be saved. You've heard this, but you've not turned. I I, want to beg that you consider, I want to appeal to you to consider what is worth it. Because very often this is the issue behind some, why some souls won't turn to Christ. It's because they don't consider it worth it. The excuses are oftentimes given things like, oh, there's just not enough evidence, bull. There's enough evidence. That's the excuse that is given to make the heart feel better. What it, what it often is, is that souls don't see it as worth it because they don't want to give up what they will lose. Because yes, understand there is loss. There is loss to turn to Christ. Now you understand not in the end. In the end, it's not loss. Okay. Whatever we lose on the front end, the pleasure, the joy gets restored in the age to come and 60, 80, a hundred fold. If you lose something, but it gets restored later in, in 60 fold, that's not actual loss. That's called investment. There is no sacrifice in the Christian life, but even Jesus would speak about loss on the front end. He said, if anyone tries to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will find it. 
there, there is a loss on the front end. Every Christian must lose your life. Now, there's one element of that that is speaking to martyrdom for those apostles and those believers who do lose their physical life. But there is also a figurative sense that Jesus means this. Every Christian must lose your life in the sense that the, the, the call to follow Christ is a call to come and die. We die to self. We hand over lordship to Jesus. We bow the knee of submission. There is no I rule my life and I do what I want and be a Christian. It doesn't exist. To turn to Christ means to bow the knee of submission to his lordship. Christian, you must lose your life. If you're not in Christ, the call to come to Christ is the call to come and die. Lose your life by giving your life to Christ. So there is a kind of loss. And some don't count it worth it. So if that's you, I appeal to you. Eternity is eternal. And I just want to ask you, what would make it worth it for, what would make it worth it to be sentenced to hell? Okay, so you have things that you're unwilling to give up. You have some reason why you don't count it worth it. Let's just imagine for a second that you got all the things that your heart desires all these things that you want. Everybody has their own kind of desires, lust, fantasies for you. What, what would it be? Is it fame? Well, let's just imagine that you got it to the degree that you want. You became a star. Everybody loved your name. Hundreds of thousands of people screamed your name, whatever. Is it popularity? Okay, well, let's just say you got it to the degree that you, you lust for it. Is it money? Well, let's just pretend that you got gobs of whatever that, whatever that number is for you, but you got all of it. Is it power? You got all of it that you wanted. Is your sexual, whatever your sexual fantasies are, let's say you got it and you lived in it and you got all of these things you desire in your flesh and you got it all the way. Let's just pretend you got it for a full hundred years. You won't. Let's just pretend you got it for a full hundred years living the nth degree of your fantasies. Would that make it worth it to then be sentenced to hell? Now, you know that the world is always trying to preach this false gospel of you can have paradise on earth and then paradise in heaven. That's not the gospel according to Jesus. The gospel according to Jesus is we die to self now. We leave the greed. We leave the sexual sin we turn our backs on uh, these indulgences and we come to follow Christ. It's repent and then comes glory. But if you got it all, whatever your ultimate would be, would that make it worth it to then be sentenced to hell? Where day after day, passing into year after year, age after age, and when 10,000 ages had come and gone, you were still no closer to escape than the first day you entered. Where like the man in Luke 16, who cried out and begged for just a drop of water on his tongue so that for just one moment, he could have one little place of relief on his body. And even that was denied him. By the way, his second request was to beg for somebody to go and preach to his family to be saved to repent, but to pass through all of these ages 
for the hopeless weight of the thought that you will never escape will crush you, would that make it worth it to then go to hell? A century of indulgence. Well, that is what you will have to conclude. That's part of the significance of Paul saying, I consider that the sufferings are worth it. You are going to have to come to the conclusion on your own as well. But the Bible says, and surely every bit of wisdom and reason inside of you cries out, it's not worth it. The only place where anything is worth it is in Christ. In Christ, there is eternal life. And the sufferings of this life will be as nothing compared to the glory that is to come. So come to Christ. But now I want to I also apply this to the Christians. So please, I, I ask you, listen in for the last little bit here. Part of the point here is that the spirit is working that we will know. Remember what we studied last week, praying that we would know the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance we have in Christ. The spirit is working that we will come to know down to the depth of our bones, know the hope that we have, the hope of glory. Christian, this is one of those critical truths you're going to have to get rooted into you because it is going to be tested. You're going to have to have this rooted into until the, the roots grow deep and give you foundation until you're clinging tightly to that hope of the anchor. So we said last week, you're going to suffer. That is part of following Christ. We will not all have equal shares of difficulty and pain. But listen to me, you are at some point going to be rocked with difficulty. You are at some point going to be hit so hard with some hardship, some affliction that your very foundations shake. And when it does, this is when many fall away. This is when many fall away. This is when many make shipwreck of their faith. And, 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 and even though we've got all the question about, well, is he saved? Is he not? You know, what, what does all this mean? There are some mysteries we don't understand till the end, but also know that there's possible for genuine believers to enter seasons of darkness, enter sloughs of despond that they never make it out of and live in a depressed or bitter state for the rest of their lives. At some point, suffering, pain, hardship, affliction is going to hit you so hard, your teeth rattle. And the question is, will you then be pushed into the reefs and your ship torn to pieces or will you cling to Christ? Part of how that question is answered is our understanding of these truths right here, that it is worth it. Because Christian, when you get hit, those are the moments when your enemy are gonna, is going to whisper some things into your thoughts. He's going to whisper thoughts that normally you would just brush off and wouldn't give a second thought to. But when your foundations have been shaken, that's when some of those thoughts can start to gain a little traction because there's worry, there's things happening here. You're in a place that's not normal. 
And those thoughts that he gives, it'll be different for different people because we're all tempted in different kinds of ways, but it can be rooted down to a group of things that he just keeps recycling. Like how he tempted Adam and Eve when he said, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows the day that you'll eat from it, you'll become like him. What he was suggesting there is that God doesn't really have your best interests at heart. God's not really working for your greatest good, for your greatest joy. If God really loved you, he wouldn't do these kinds of things to you. For some thoughts you've never had before will hit. For some, the, the questions and thoughts of things like, is God even there? Maybe all of this is just a waste. Or he must hate me. He must despise me. If he loved me, he wouldn't let me go through this kind of pain. Or I must not even be saved. He, he, just, he just must not even care for me. Or he can't really be good. By the way, even Job, even Job wrestled with that thought. Is God good? Or some version of the idea. This just isn't worth it. All kinds of thoughts he's going to throw at you. Normally you might brush them off, but in that hour, it'll be difficult. And Christian, we are going to have to have these kinds of roots of big truths that we need in times of big suffering so that you have something to say to your soul. Because whenever those thoughts are rolling around in times of despair, you got to be careful that you don't just listen to the thoughts that are going on. Those are the times you got to preach to yourself. Those are the times you got to have something to say to your soul to encourage and strengthen yourself once again. And you can say these hardships cannot even compare to the glory that is to come. This is not the only one. There might be 40 big truths from the Bible that you can say to your soul in times of hardship, but this is one of them and you have got to have this one in your framework so that you joyfully say it is worth it. If that doubt creeps in of is it, is it not, it will tear you to pieces. When the hour of shaking comes, you have got to have this theology rooted in yourself. So the effect this is meant to have on us is to strengthen us in hope that we cling tightly to the rope tied to the anchor, that we fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, oh God, that you'll take these truths and deeply apply them to our hearts. Whatever I've said that's not helpful, Father, erase it, Lord, but whatever truths we have considered that glorifies you, God, we pray, root them down deep in us, oh Lord. I pray that we will stand on solid ground. Father, help your people. Bless us to glorify you. And I pray for any that has not yet turned to Christ, and I pray, oh God, that they will respond to Christ and turn. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Till next week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine I-N-D. 
or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.